morning, beloved Covenant family. Sure good to be with you all. Great to see you and great to be able to be together. Welcome back to some of you who are back for the very first time since all of this nonsense began. I love that you're here and welcome for the first time for those of you who may be visiting with us for the very first time today. Uh, in just a sec, our kiddos, good morning, beloved kiddos. It's such a joy to see you all. Some of you are already leaving. Uh, before we officially dismiss the kids, let me just ask, anybody notice anything different about what's up front up here? Anybody's been here? I'm kind of in the way. Anybody see anything different? Somebody mentioned, I think, this golden girl sitting on the bench. Anybody notice that? All right, we'll find out more about her in a minute. Kids, you are dismissed. You are free to go to your program. Well, for some reason, I was thinking recently about how the evangelical church and the version of Christianity that it offers is sort of like a hot dog eating contest. I don't know if that had to do with the Super Bowl coming up tonight. I imagine that some people are kind of going to approach the snack table like a hot dog eating contest, especially when it's those little hot dog things and it's easy to pack away uh, a dozen or two. So this is actually the connection that I was thinking about. Uh, in 2013, Joey Chestnut won the world record by eating 73 hot dogs at the International Hot Dog Eating Contest. Can you imagine? Doesn't just about everything about that seem wrong? Well. So here was how my thought process went. We, we all recognize that, that the way you're supposed to enjoy food is to sit down at the table and eat something and then not eat some more and then after that eat a little bit more and then eat a lot more and then pack away a bunch more and then stuff a bunch more in. The, the normal rhythm of eating is you sit down at the table and you eat a nutritious meal and then you get up and you go and you expend the energy that you've just taken in. It's a rhythm that's reflected in the grace that I still remember so vividly my grandfather praying at every meal we ever enjoyed out on the porch at his house up at Culver. He would always begin the meal by praying, Lord, bless this food to our use and us to thy service. In Christ's name we ask it. It's that us to thy service part that is completely wrong with a hot dog eating contest, and in some cases can be wrong in an imbalance in the church of an overemphasis on taking in and, and not so much of an emphasis on the us in thy service part. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began a new sermon series in the book of Philippians. And in the opening verses, as we've noticed, Paul highlights the way that God works Whenever the, the kingdom of heaven begins to break in and the spirit begins to move among the people of God and people's lives begin to be changed, inevitably the effect of that other realm breaking into this realm is three simultaneous works of the spirit taking place at the same time. There's a movement toward community as the spirit brings us together in love. There's a movement toward maturity as the spirit grows us up together in love, 
And then there's a, there's a movement toward ministry as the Spirit sends us out together in that same love. So today we're exploring the third of those three, the calling of the Holy Spirit on our lives to, to go out together and to live out a life of love. So God calls us to be heralds and representatives of, to be mission workers and kingdom workers for the sake of that other realm here in this realm as long as we are here. And that's why we have the golden girl here in this setup. She's reminding us that God does not just call us to, uh, to climb the ladder and vacate the premises, but actually as transformed people to step back into this world and be part of the way that his light and love is made known. Over the past month or two, I have been reading the wonderful little devotional book called A Testament of Devotion by Walter Kelly. I would really highly recommend it. And these are some of the things he writes. There is an experience of the eternal breaking into time that transforms all of life into a miracle of faith and action. The inward life and the outward concern are truly one. The joy that we know in the presence is not only our little private subjective joy pocketed away from others, a private gift from a benevolent and gracious God. It is the joy and peace and serenity, which is the divine life itself, and we are given to share that joy. The experience of divine presence wholly satisfies, and we may, like those on the Mount of Transfiguration, want to linger there forever and never return to the valleys of men where there are demons to be cast out. But there is more to the experience of God than that of being plucked out of the world. The fuller experience is of a love which also sends us back into the world. Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. So let's look at how that theme comes through in the passage that we're looking at today, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So as we turn there, let me just provide you with a little bit of context. We learn from this passage that Paul is writing to the Philippians from somewhere else in some place where he is in chains. So he's in, incarcerated, imprisoned somewhere. And we aren't sure exactly where or when Paul wrote this letter, but the the strongest evidence is that it was during one of the two times that he was imprisoned by Emperor Nero in Rome. This is a prison cell in the uh, Tulanum, or Tullianum, where Paul was traditionally believed to have been imprisoned uh, when he was in Rome. This is on the Capitoline Hill, uh, right at the end of the Roman Forum in the very center of Rome. And I got uh, the privilege of going and seeing this a year and a half ago. It was really moving to be able to be there. So it could be that this is where Paul dictated his letter to Timothy that was sent on to the Philippians. Or he may have been held in one of the hundreds of rooms inside Emperor Nero's Golden Palace, which sat perched on the hill where I took this picture overlooking where the Colosseum would be built just a few years later. It's also possible that he wrote this letter when he was under house arrest, when he first arrived in Rome. This is described in the very last chapter of the book of Acts, you may remember, where Paul talks about uh, being under Roman guard, but he is in his own house and he's able to welcome visitors who come and see him while he's still under guard and chain. So let's listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, 
as Paul, wherever he is, is chained up and guarded by the elite group of soldiers who served as Emperor Nero's bodyguard and his palace security. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So what did you notice as I read through those passages? There's a lot that's packed in here, and some of the themes, including specifically the theme of the division within the church and, and how the gospel addresses those things, those are things we're going to need to wait uh, a few weeks to, to address. But there are three things that I think come through really strongly in this passage that are connected with this idea of wherever it is that the kingdom breaks in, the spirit moves to send us out into the world as kingdom representatives. So let's, let's go back and notice those together. Here's idea number one. Even when we are confined, the gospel is not. Even when we are confined, the gospel is not. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. And now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul uses a pun here. I'm sure you knew that Paul punned often in his writing, and I'm sure that has only increased your regard for him. So Paul uses a pun here to surprise his ministry partners with the news that his ministry is carrying on and the gospel is going forward, even though he is stuck in prison somewhere. What we expect him to say is, what has happened to me has actually served to hinder, proscope the gospel. But what he writes is, what has happened to me has actually served to advance, procope the gospel. So after traveling over 10,000 miles to more than 50 towns and cities throughout two different continents, now Paul is stuck in chains in a prison in Rome. You would think it would have put an end to his ministry. But Paul has learned the lesson that no matter where we are and what our circumstances, God still brings people into our lives in order for them to be touched through us by the gospel. It was common during the Roman Empire for prisoners to actually be chained directly to the guards who watched over them. So whether they are guarding his Paul in his prison cell or eating donuts in his kitchen, Paul still takes advantage of the fact that he has a captive audience literally during his imprisonment. I love how he turns the perspective around. I think of the years when Benan, our uh, dear friend and ministry partner in Turkey, uh, was assigned a police bodyguard after he received a death threat. And for several years, everywhere he went, his uh, bodyguard went with him. And rather than resenting that fact, Benan saw it as an opportunity, and he befriended this man, became a very, very close friend of his, and shared resources with him, and had the opportunity through that friendship to be able to share with this man, a Muslim man, the hope of Christ. God brings into our lives, even when our lives feel narrow and confined, he brings into our lives 
people that he, he means for us to touch. As, God, as Doug Pollock would say, there are always people on our route, even when our route feels like it is about this long and we're forced to stay at home. Bob White, one of our elders, said at a recent meeting that he noticed how his friendships, his relationships with people in his neighborhood had, had deepened really significantly as a result of being stuck at home. And he said he'd had conversations with a number of other people at, at Covenant and found that they had reported the same thing. And I know a number of you have shared the same thing. It's certainly been my own experience. So even here, even now, even in this time of forced distance and isolation, there are places of connection. They may be fewer and they may be less obvious, but they are there. So rather than focus on the chains, Paul encourages us to look at who's attached to the other end of them. Who has God put in your life during this hard season? Maybe the people who live on either side of you or across the hall from you or across the street from you. Maybe it's the staff at the residence facility where you live or the medical team that's taking care of you. Maybe it's your roommates or your Zoom mates, the people who sit next to you each day at school, your mom and dad, your brother and sister, your kids, your mailman, your furnace, or re furnace repair person. Who is still a part of your life? Who has come newly into your life during this COVID time? They are your Roman guard. Lord, give us eyes to see the people that you have placed right around us in our lives, even during COVID restrictions. So here's idea number two. The first one is that even when we are confined, the gospel is not, here's the second one, the gospel is a gift that we give people, not a burden that we lay on them or impose on them. So let's go back again to verse 12 and notice another word. Philippians chapter one, verse 12 says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It turns out the gospel is not only the main theme of this section that we're looking at today, but it is also one of the most important ideas in the whole book of Philippians. It's the, the word is repeated nine times in these four short chapters. So in the earliest English translations, this Greek word was translated into Old English, and it came out as Godspiel, which later morphed into Godspell, which eventually became Gospel. And that's the word that has stuck around and stayed with us and shows up in so many of the different translations. We have uh, today, which really doesn't tell us anything. What's a gospel? Sometimes this same Greek word was just sounded out in English and spelled out rather than making any effort to translate it. The Greek word is euangelion. You could probably hear how similar that is to our word evangelism. That's where it comes from. It's basically just spelled out the same word in English letters. So that's what the New International Version does as an example in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where where it talks about doing the work of an evangelist. It doesn't tell us what the word means. Neither of these words help us to get at the heart of this thing that Paul has given the last 14 years of his life to advancing around the known world. The word in Greek literally means the good news. That's how a few translations, like the New Living Translation, put it. It's kind of ironic that the Good News translation translates this to the gospel. I don't get that. So just let this sink in for a second. Good news. That means every single time when we're reading the New Testament and we encounter the word gospel, 
or we encounter any word that's related to the word evangelism, that's the thing that we should be having in mind, thinking in terms of good news. The gospel is the good news. Evangelism is good newsing. We can drift into thinking of evangelism as this forced process by which we seek to argue someone into something in which they don't have the least bit of interest. And it's worse, it feels like a burden that we are imposing on people instead of a gift that we're giving them. So let's stay here a second. Good is not a word that we hear attached to the news very often these days, is it? So in a world that is stressed out and fearful and frightened and frustrated and lonely, we have genuinely good news to tell. We have news of something that's desirable, something that's hopeful, something that's powerful, something that is beautiful. News of something that has changed our lives and something that can change the life of the person that we are speaking with as well. So what is this good news that we have to offer the world? Well, since about 1940 or 1950, the evangelical church has defined the good news as something along the lines of uh, believe the gospel and you'll be forgiven for your sins and when you die, you'll go to heaven. Well, yeah, while that's true, technically speaking, that's about like saying the Super Bowl is just a bunch of grown men playing catch. I mean, technically speaking, that is all the Super Bowl is, but that doesn't begin to capture the whole story of what's going on. So what is the good news? Well, just according to what Paul has written in these four chapters, we're given all kinds of clues, and as we piece them together, what the news that we are given is absolutely amazing. It starts with an incredible claim that at the center of human history stands a person who was both God and man, unlike any other human being. 2,000 years ago, he visited the earth, and that visit changed everything. With his life and death and his resurrection from death to life, he declared himself and demonstrated himself to be the king of kings and to begin to spread his kingdom around this world. And someday he will return. And when he does, he himself will wrap up human history at the center of which he stands. He will gather together all things under his rule, placing all things under his feet. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The good news centers on this incredible person of Jesus. That's why three different times during these verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul uses preach Christ interchangeably with share good news. If we ever give some version of the news that doesn't have Jesus as its center, as, that has, doesn't have Jesus as, as the primary message that we are conveying, then we're missing it. You may be aware that the expression good news was used in the Roman Empire whenever something momentous happened in connection with the Roman emperor, the day of his birth or the day of a major military victory or the day of his ascension to the throne. 
So remember that Paul is writing from Rome to little Rome, essentially. Philippi was a Roman city in, with Roman citizens that was overrun with a, a cult of worshipers worshiping the Roman emperor. So there is absolutely no coincidence. Paul is being really intentional here of using this Roman term to describe good news of an altogether different and greater sort. It isn't Augustus or Tiberius or, or Claudius or Nero whose birth and victory and ascension to the throne stand at the center of human history. Not at all. It is the miraculous birth and the victorious death and the glorious ascension of Jesus. Jesus, whose return we await with longing. That is the heart of the incredible good news that we have to share. And that isn't all. That's just, that's just the beginning of it. Connected to that incredible claim about that incredible person is an incredible invitation that we can come to know this God King, that we can enter into a relationship of love with him, and that we can become part of his kingdom forever. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, gaining Christ, being found in him. It is a relationship of far greater value than anything else the human experience has to offer. Anything else on this human plane. 3 verse 8, I consider everything a loss. Everything compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. It's a relationship that not only brings us into intimacy with God, but it also brings us into rich and beautiful relationship with one another, with our fellow believers in Christ. It brings us into a koinonia, a fellowship of affection, a partnership of mission that is a foretaste of that coming kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 5, I thank God for you because of our partnership together in the good news. Incredibly, our footing in this relationship is based entirely on his effort and not on ours. As he offers his life as a perfect sacrifice in our place, the innocent in place of the guilty, not only to purchase our forgiveness, but to purchase our lives and to reconcile us to God, bringing us into relationship with him. All we need to do is trust his work and receive his gift. Chapter three, verse three, we put no confidence in the flesh. Three, verse nine, we have a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And at the heart of this relationship, stands an incredible promise that when we say yes, when we entrust our lives into the hands of Jesus the King by faith, then his spirit begins a work in us, a work of transformation in us, making us, each of us, more and more into the likeness of the very King that we have given our lives to and whom we seek to know and to love and to follow transforming us together into citizens who are more and more fit for participation in that other heavenly realm. Chapter 1, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus. 2, verses 3 to 5, our attitude more and more becoming the same as that of Jesus. And when he returns, he will bring that work to completion bringing us into glory, redeeming all of creation and ushering us into a love relationship with him for eternity in the new physical reality. Chapter three, verses 20 to 21, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now that's some good news. That's news that is hopeful and powerful and beautiful. That is news that this world needs and wants, that this world longs to hear. I can't go on without just stopping and asking if that good news has become your good news. Is that the truest thing of all in your life? Have you said yes to this extraordinary invitation to be in relationship with the King of Kings forever? To be part of that other realm that he is bringing into existence in our midst? Is there something that's keeping you from saying yes to him? Is there something that stands in the way of your receiving this grace gift and from entering into this life-changing relationship with the king, a relationship that is of greater value than anything else that can be found in the human experience? What if you said yes today? Where here's the final thing that I want to remind you of that comes from this passage. Idea number three, news is for telling, especially good news. Paul has gone to great lengths, literally, to make this good news known all through the known world. In these verses, Paul uses a number of different synonyms to describe the way he is trying to share the gospel. He talks about the gospel advancing in verse 12, the gospel being proclaimed in verse 14, being preached in verses 15, 17, and 18, and he talks about the gospel being defended in verse 16. Let me just pause for a moment on that last word, defended. When Paul mentions this in verse 16, he's actually pointing back to where he's already used this word in verse 7, and he's used it in a pair of words that I think is really worth our taking a moment to look at. And we only have a minute now to touch on this, but this is such an important idea and one that we'll be unfolding in several different messages as we go on through this series. So let's look at these two words that Paul uses to talk about how he goes about sharing the good news, defending and confirming. The Greek word for defending is the the word apologia, which is where we get our word apologetics. Literally, it means from the word. It's a technical term for making a legal defense in the courts, but it's also, in its more general meaning, just a a well-reasoned reply or a thoughtful answer. That's what Paul provides wherever he goes with the gospel. So let me ask you, how prepared are you, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, how prepared are you to give an answer to anyone who asks you, about the hope that you have. We should be prepared to provide a thoughtful answer anytime that question is raised. Well, the word Paul uses for confirming the good news comes from a word that means solid enough to walk on. It refers to giving the sort of validating evidence that shows something is worthy of our confidence as we consider putting our weight on it. So it means establishing or confirming or validating evidence. So how do we do that? 
How did Paul do that? How do we lend support to the claims that we're making about who Jesus is and what he promises? With our lives. How well does your life, I love this phrase from from Titus chapter 2, verse 10, how well does your life make the teaching about God our Savior attractive? This is Lindy, one of Lindy Heath's favorite verses. Is your life consistent with the message of unconditional love from God that we have said yes to? So Paul talks about his approach in making the good news known is by a combination of thoughtful and well-reasoned answers and a life that is consistent with it. Word and walk, defend and confirm, talk the talk, walk the walk, make sure the soundtrack and the video are communicating the same message. A few days ago, I got some salt and I threw it on my driveway. So imagine if I told my neighbor that I did that and he said, really, what, you threw salt on your driveway? What'd you do that for? Well, the salt melts all that ice that's on my driveway. Well, that's a strange claim. How do I know that what you're saying is true? Well, I could pick up the bag that the salt came out of and say, well, it says right here that this is what's true, that this is what this product does. I could pull out my iPad and do an exposition on the molecular structure of sodium chloride. And those things would be true, but wouldn't the most compelling confirmation, validation, evidence of the truth of what I was saying be to just say, come here, look at my driveway. The salt works. The ice is melting. So imagine that I told my neighbor the good news about Jesus, and he said, really? You believe in someone who died 2,000 years ago, and you believe that he was divine, and you believe that somehow through this death that he died, that he accomplished something that made you right with God and brought you into a relationship with him? Really, where are you getting that? Well, I I could say, well, look, here are the instructions. This is what it says. This is what the, the manufacturer says is true. This is what the Bible says is true, and that would be legitimate. I could pull out my iPad, and I could do a a word study on the Greek expression salt of the earth and try to convince him that way. But wouldn't the most compelling evidence of all just be to say, come here, look at my life. The gospel works. The gospel melts hearts. My life is different as a result of the presence of Jesus in it and his work in it. That's the approach that Paul models for us in his dealing with the Roman guards. Draw close enough to Jesus so that your life actually is different and then draw close enough to the people that Jesus puts around you in your life so that they can see the difference that he has made. Defending and confirming, defending and confirming. Jesus calls us as people that he has called together into a fellowship of love and that he has called up toward maturity in love He calls us to go out and to good news together in that same love, to live out a life of love, to announce through our lives and our words that something amazing has happened that this world needs to know about, something desirable and beautiful and powerful 
and hopeful that can do amazing and beautiful things in their lives. Thomas Kelly in the Testament of Devotion writes, but what is the content and aim of this yearning love, which is in fact the divine love loving its way into and through us to others? It is that they too may make the great discovery that they also may find God or better be found by him, that they may know the eternal breaking in upon them and making their lives moving images of the eternal life and love. That's God's intention for us as people of good news, that our lives would be moving images of his loving presence. We have good news. It is changing your life. It's changing our life together. And it can change the life of every person we speak with. So beloved brothers and sisters, what is your response to God's invitation to us through Paul's letter this morning? Paul says, even when we are confined, the gospel isn't. Paul says the gospel is a gift that we give people, not a burden that we impose on them. And Paul says, News is for sharing, especially good news. Would you pray? Lord, we thank you for the life and the light of your presence within. Thank you for the transforming work that you have done in us through Jesus. And Lord, we... we turn our eyes from you to this world that you've placed around us, to the nations around us, to the people who don't have this hope. We pray, that, Lord, that you, for the sake of that world, would let your light and love shine in us for every eye to see, for all those that you've brought into our lives, that this world too would come to know, to love, and to delight in you. We offer ourselves and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.